Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey and on Instagram at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, I speak with a journalist, Damon Linker, about the later plays of Eugene O'Neill. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, literature, and theology podcast hosted by me, Jennifer Frey. I'm really excited to be speaking with Damon Linker this morning about the tragic vision of the American playwright Eugene O'Neill. Damon is a senior correspondent at The Week. His essays and reviews have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, among other illustrious publications. Welcome to the podcast, Damon. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. It's great to be here. I've listened to a number of uh, your episodes over the past several months and even, I think, a couple of years now, and uh, it's, it's an honor. Thanks. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about the topic and the author that you chose. I had never read. I had never seen or read Eugene O'Neill prior to you sending it to me. And it's amazing. But before we get to Eugene O'Neill, I really wanted to invite you, Damon, to tell us a little bit about your intellectual and spiritual background, just as a segue or a starting off point into telling us what attracts you to the plays of Eugene O'Neill. Sure. Um, Yeah, I'll do my best to to keep it brief. It's a complicated story. Um, uh, I I sort of grew up as a a secular uh, Jew. Uh, My father is Jewish. Uh, My mother was a convert to Judaism when she married my father, but it was for pretty much Uh, cultural reasons, not religious ones. My father was raised by an Orthodox uh, Jew from Poland, and his mother was also an Orthodox Jew from Austria. Um, So they took Judaism very seriously as a religion. My father rebelled against that and did not, but he still had a lot of kind of cultural attachment to it. Uh, My childhood was also very rocky. My mother, who I mentioned a moment ago, had a a, a kind of complete mental breakdown when I was eight. Uh, My parents divorced. She moved out and she disappeared from my life entirely by the time I was about 10. So I was then raised by my father with my younger brother. And I, I won't get into those gory details here. But um, some of the things that we'll talk about in O'Neill's background uh, kind of lead me to relate to some of the traumas of his childhood, and I think partially explain in a psychological sense why I'm drawn to some of his darkness. Kind of leaping ahead to the more intellectual side of things, um, politically, intellectually, I sort of was raised without knowing it, uh, and even without my dad knowing it, raising us uh, as a kind of default liberal pluralist, um, sort of centrist liberal. I think, uh, you know, I, I had no real intellectual upbringing in the sense that my my father only had an associate's degree, was not really that bookish, but he was, 
uh, you know, reared on reading the New York Times every day and being kind of culturally literate uh, in a way that I think uh, helped me when I got to college. But I, I very quickly sort of fell in with reading uh, Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind, which sort of seduced me over toward the Straussian side of things, which- Oh, um, you had a Straussian phase. Interesting. I did. And I actually remain uh, very deeply uh, connected to at least certain strands of the Straussian world. You'll see me on Twitter sometimes talking to various Straussians, not the more political Claremont kind of Straussians. Not who a West Coast Straussian. No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much so East Coast, I, I have a second home in Bermuda. That's a metaphor, <laughs> not literal. Um, so very East Coast, which basically, for those who don't know, just means focus on things like, uh, you know, reading Plato and, and caring about philosophy and being a little bit skeptical of being too politically engaged, which is quite different than the, the West Coast, very uh, kind of right-wing Republican style. Um, so, but I never really even fully bought into all of that in graduate school. I studied with Straussians. I learned an enormous amount from them, but there was a kind of schoolishness or cliquishness to it that I, I sort of consistently always, you know, never want to be a member of a club that would have me for a member, that kind of old Woody Allen dynamic mm -hmm. that sort of explains me. And um, in sort of rebound from some of the more radical philosophical questioning that I was doing with those professors, I ended up uh, drawn to Catholicism in my early 30s and ended up converting to the church, in fact, when I was uh, 30 years old. And of course, <clears throat> I, I came to believe uh, for a brief moment that there maybe was some Oh, providentialism and prevenient grace involved in this when right as I was in the middle of my uh, RCIA program, uh, I applied for and got a job as an editor at First Things Magazine. Everything was coming together. Um, <laughs> and so I, I ended up, I, I, this happened because I was having trouble finding an academic job. There was nothing kind of providential about that. That's common enough. So I was sort of leaving the academy and then ended up doing that. And I worked at First Things for a few years, uh, liked it in some ways, but... What years were your First Things? Uh, I started in May of 2001, so about five or four months before 9-11. Uh, and I quit um, in a bit of a huff uh, in, I believe, uh, the beginning of February 2005. Okay. Uh, and by that point, I had sort of broken from the ideological disposition of the place uh, and, and had signed a book contract to write my first book, The Theocons, which was sort of about first things uh, and its influence on the Bush administration. Mm. Um, so that was a very critical book of my former employer. Uh, and at the same time in that period is when uh, the worst of the priests and bishops sex scandals were exploding yep. in the church. And I had been working for Richard John Newhouse, a priest, and he took a certain line on those scandals that I didn't agree with. And there was the Iraq war. It was a it was a, I it was remember a, it well. <laughs> it was, and it was a rough divorce for me, leaving yeah. the, the, the magazine. I made a bunch of enemies. And over the years, 
I did raise my children uh, in the church. My kids were born in uh, around that same first things period, 2002 and 2005. But uh, over the years, I drifted further and further away from the church and ended up uh, essentially leaving it uh, a few years ago. I haven't been to Mass in a few years. Mm -hmm. um, and today, I'm sort of back at, a, I guess I like to think, a higher intellectual level than when I, when I began, but sort of come full circle as a sort of liberal pluralist. So, you know, the, the kind of, uh, to speak Hegel for a minute, like the, the, the moments of negation in this story, I've sort of skated over mm -hmm. uh, the parts where I sort of make a, a sort of dramatic turn away from a previous positive position through a kind of almost violent critique of where I just was. Um, and I've sort of left those aside, assuming they'll come up in the course of our conversation about O'Neill, because O'Neill um, is sort of all negation in a way. That's one way I think of understanding him. And that is certainly one of the things that really has drawn me to him over the years. Yeah, well, certainly O'Neill had a very traumatic childhood that involved um, a, a very tortured relationship with his mother and, and also his father. And this is kind of the material of one of the plays that we're going to be talking about, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I, I mean, I, I read the play, but then I did also watch a movie version with Katherine Hepburn. Have you seen that one? Yeah. And I, I rewatched parts of it over this last weekend. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was quite good. I don't know. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. It is, and especially, um, I mean, the performances, uh, O'Neill is very difficult to act. I've seen Long Day's Journey uh, performed live in the theater twice, um, mm -hmm. and I've seen that film, uh, and then also this documentary that I'm sure will come up, the American Experience documentary of O'Neill, which I very strongly recommend to anyone with any interest in O'Neill, contains little set pieces where renowned actors sort of act certain long speeches or soliloquies from the plays. Right. Um, and I can take the best performances from these different things mm -hmm. and put them together into the perfect cast, <laughs> but none of them are the perfect cast uh, for mm -hmm. me. I mean, the film, the, for me, the high watermark is Jason Robards. I think he is by far the greatest O'Neill uh, male lead actor. Okay. Um, his He he acted uh, as Hickey in the original, uh, well, not the original, the second Broadway production of The Iceman. The first version received pretty mediocre reviews and was sort of mocked by people hmm. and that's because the the cast this was in 1946 first of all the country was not ready for that incredibly bleak dark play in 1946 right after world war ii mm -hmm. and then the cast from everything i've read about it was completely overmatched um and and simply could not pull it off robards as hickey is just transcendently great mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean if you have any any uh any appeal if you find any appeal in that play, uh, he, I think, is as good as it gets. And his performance as Jamie, uh, the older brother in Long Day's Journey in the film, and he also did it on Broadway before that, is also, I think, fabulous. And there's also... He also acted as the same character, Jamie Tyrone, in Moon for the Misbegotten, 
which is mm. uh, the final play that O'Neill wrote and also uh, was done on Broadway with, again, uh, this time I think in the 70s with Robarts playing it, but you can also see a video version of that from a TV performance from the 70s, and he's very good in that as well. And then, you know, Catherine Hepburn is, is quite good as uh, Mary Tyrone, the mother, uh, in the film. Vanessa Redgrave, whom I saw on Broadway in 2003, was excellent also mm. as Mary. But for instance, I saw the t in that same 2003 performance, actually, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, you know, one of our all-time great Hollywood actors who died at a tragically oh, young age. Him. He was he was in that performance, so it was great to see him live on stage. Uh, but he played Jamie, and I think was awful at it. He basically just bellowed and raged mm. on the stage, especially in the traumatic fourth act rant that uh, Jamie goes through. Mm -hmm. um, he he was he just overdid it, like did it at you know volume at 11 and you had like static in the uh in the in the uh the speakers yeah. from it being metaphorically speaking yeah well that's funny because so i love the documentary the american experience documentary and i will put it in the show notes because everybody should watch it but of course it also had al pacino who is completely insufferable <laughs> he yeah, his he, his uh, I, yeah i was gonna say um christopher Plummer, who died just a few months ago does mm -hmm. the father's speech from act four yeah absolutely beautifully the most yes. beautiful acting of that speech i have ever yes. seen in that documentary but yeah pacino doing the hickey oh, i mean horrible. first of all he's reading it slowly you can tell he's reading it his glasses are falling down his face and you can tell he's like hasn't rehearsed it at all and it's so slow and over the top yeah you damn bitch it's just yeah. <laughs> it, it's just it's almost like a an snl version of acting o'neill Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, Pacino became a caricature of himself, but he did. Anyway. He was great in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so this play, Long Day's Journey and Tonight, it's very autobiographical, and but you know, maybe we should just go over Eugene O'Neill as a as a person, and then get into the play. Sure, that makes sense. I, I have some notes here with kind of the highlights of, of his youth uh, to kind of lay the groundwork for our discussion and also for the play, because the play, in case listeners aren't aware, Long Day's Journey and Tonight is entirely memoiristic, autobiographical, with only a few small adjustments to the historical record. Now, of course, it's it's a fictionalized account of a single day and evening in the life of this family, and so it's obviously an artistic representation of how O'Neill understood his own family. There was no day like you get in this play, but it is based entirely on their family. So um, Eugene O'Neill's father, uh, Eugene was born in 1888. His, uh, his father, James O'Neill, was a very well-known actor uh, in the 19th century, very well-known in America, especially, I mean, when he was younger, he was an up-and-coming Shakespearean actor, and we'll get to probably later that, that he was 
you know, recognized by some as a potentially, you know, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors in American history when he was young. But at some point um, in his life, he began acting in a play called The Count of Monte Cristo, which was a kind of melodrama, very juicy melodrama. And he was so good in it that he became quite wealthy, barnstorming around the country on endless tours, performing this around the United States. States. He eventually bought the rights to the play and ended up becoming pretty pretty wealthy from the proceeds of this performance that he did. And he eventually, it became clear he would never act in anything else again. He turned down other roles, other Shakespeare parts, and just acted in that play. Now, in the midst of this, uh, James, the father, married um, uh, Ella, uh, Eugene O'Neill's mother. Uh, they basically toured the country together a lot. And then at some point, James in the 18, I think 1874, purchased a home in New London, Connecticut, that became the place they would settle every summer for a few months when they would take a break from the endless touring around the country. Uh, they had a, a son, James Jr., also known as Jamie. And then a few years later, a second child, a son named Edmund. Now, when uh, Jamie was uh, seven and Edmund was two, Ella uh, left the children in the care of kind of a, a house sitter uh, who, who would live lived with them most of the time and set off to meet James on the road for a few weeks. When she arrived, uh, at, I think, in New York to meet James, she received a telegram saying that the eldest child, Jamie, had contracted measles. And very soon after that, a second telegram arrived saying that the two-year-old, Edmund, had also contracted measles. So she, Ella, turned around, went back to the home, and by the time she arrived, the younger child, Edmund, had died of measles. This uh, sent her into a depressive spiral. It was a, a terrible blow to her and to the family. And by all accounts, she uh, blamed Jamie, the elder child, for deliberately infecting Edmund and really never forgave him at a certain level for this. And this sort of traumatizes Jamie for the rest of his life. Um, Ella did not want another child. <clears throat> they waited a few years, and then eventually, I think by accident, she became pregnant again. And that was Eugene, uh, who then was born. And Ella was worried that God would punish her for this. She was, by the way, I should have said this earlier, I'm going out of order, but it comes up a lot and will come up for us. She was a devout Catholic. I mean, both of them were, James and Ella, and uh, Ella were, but she had considered being a nun when she was younger and uh, gave it up for reasons that I think will come up later as well. Um, so she was very, very devout and worried that somehow uh, the death of Edmund, the second child, was a kind of punishment and that she shouldn't have another child because of, she had neglected this child. So when Eugene came, she was very uh, deeply un ambivalent about the second child. She uh, also had a very difficult childbirth, and as a result of both of these things, ended up taking morphine, to which she became addicted. Um, and struggled with that for most of the rest 
of her life. James discovered it at a certain point. The children at first didn't know, but eventually Jamie, the second child, sorry, the first child, uh, the elder child, discovered it as well. So Eugene grows up in this house with all of these sort of unspoken resentments and kind of ghosts of the past haunting the house that nobody is kind of talking about explicitly. They're just these passive-aggressive jabs at each other. His mother is very remote from him, appears not to love him or does, but then withdraws. And she's, of course, uh, for much of this time in a kind of morphine-induced stupor. And, of course, Eugene doesn't know this or doesn't understand. He's sent to a Catholic boarding school at age seven, hates it, resents being there, um, basically spends his time reading books. Then in 1901, at age 13, uh, Eugene comes home from school and surprises his mother with a syringe in, in her hand and doesn't explain what it is or why. Uh, she's holding a syringe and Eugene is shaken by this and concludes she must be very ill. She's taking medicine by a syringe and she he begins a period where he prays very regularly for her to recover. This goes on for another year or so, and when he returns once again to this new London house, this time in 1903, just before his 15th birthday, um, his mother has an episode and tries to drown herself in the river near their home in New London. Uh, it's a very traumatic experience this evening. There's a big altercation between Eugene, his brother, and father, in which uh, James admits to Eugene that Ella is addicted to morphine and has been for several years, and that's why she behaved this way and tried to kill herself. Eugene was so shaken by this news that he uh, vows to never attend Mass again, and indeed at the next Sunday refuses to go with James. They almost come to blows over it, but in the end, James goes off to Mass without Eugene. And by all accounts... Uh, Eugene never attended again for the rest of his life. That sent Eugene into about a decade of uh, downward spiral into severe alcoholism. Within this period, he finished high school, attended Princeton for, I believe, only one semester before being kicked out, both for failing classes and for drunkenness. He then ended up getting married, having a child, abandoned that wife, ran away from her by joining uh, a kind of merchant marine company and sailing all over the world on ships, uh, going all over the place. Every time they'd come into a harbor, he would go and drink himself into a stupor, come back on the ship. And this lasted several years till eventually he ends up barely making it back to the foot of Manhattan where he goes to a rot gut saloon. Uh, and uh, continues to drink himself uh, into insensibility and eventually one night tries to rightly kill himself by swallowing a bottle of Veronal pills, which was a, a barbiturate. And that leads, he does not die, obviously, at that point, but from that bottom, he begins finally to rebound. As he does, he learns very soon after that he has tuberculosis, goes into a sanatorium, and in that sanatorium, he resolves that he's going to become a playwright. And over the next seven years, he effectively teaches himself how to write plays. 
And uh, finally, after those seven years, along the way, he marries again, has another child. I think he has, doesn't he have two more children he, with the second yeah, woman? Yes, yes. Yeah. He eventually has uh, two more. Um, and uh, by 1920, so like that rock bottom is in 1912. And that's significant because his two greatest plays that we'll be talking about in this podcast both are set in that period Mm. right in the middle of that crux. So right mm -hmm. after, well, basically the Iceman Cometh is set in that saloon where Eugene O'Neill tried to kill himself at the foot mm. of Manhattan. And then Long Day's Journey is supposed to take place later that summer when Eugene has just come back to that summer home with the family and is about to go into the sanatorium. He's just received his tuberculosis uh, diagnosis, actually, in the course of the play. Um, so by 1920, he's done a number of small plays at the Provincetown Playhouse in Massachusetts and finally written one titled Beyond the Horizon that makes it to Broadway. And it gets to Broadway, receives rave reviews, and he ends up winning the Pulitzer Prize, the first of four Pulitzers that he will win from that play. Very soon after that, his father and he reconcile. His father is very proud that his son has finally achieved some success and that it's in the theater is probably complex for him, but also a source of great pride. Very soon after that, about two months later, James uh, O'Neill uh, gets very ill and eventually dies. Two years after that, Ella has a stroke on a trip to the West Coast and dies. And then a few months after that, Jamie, the elder brother, also dies. So within the course of a total of about four years, right after Eugene has his first great success in the theater, he's effectively all alone. His, both of his parents and his brother are dead. Doesn't he abandon the second wife as well in the second yes, set of he, kids? He, yes, he eventually abandons uh, the second wife and ends up with uh, Carlotta Monterey, his third wife, who becomes his third wife. Uh, they do not have any children. By then, uh, they're both in their 40s, and they remain together for the rest of uh, Eugene O'Neill's life. I don't know how much I should get into the rest of the story. Um, the, that certainly sets the foundation for uh, the, but for, at least for the plays we're going to be discussing. I mean, I guess it's worth saying that at this point, um, meaning in 2021, most of the plays that were responsible for O'Neill's reputation throughout his life um, are sort of not performed that much. They seem sort of dated. That basically accounts beyond the horizon through a whole series of, of uh, plays, uh, again, some of which won other Pulitzer Prizes, um, but they they seem a little kind of stilted. Uh, they have a lot of kind of modernistic experimentation in them with masks, two actors playing the same character, uh, one actor playing two different characters, uh, characters with like a division down their, uh, down their face to represent different sides of their personalities, Freudian tropes, things that by our time uh, seem sort of a little hackneyed and again dated to the early 20th century mm -hmm. and so by the time he's won his third Pulitzer Prize and then the Nobel Prize in uh, 1937 
if he had died at that point or never done another play, by now I think he would mostly be a kind of historical figure who we would study for the history of drama in America. I don't think his plays would be that widely performed. Mm. But what happened is, after several years of not publishing or performing any new plays, he set himself a goal to kind of up his game. And in that final period where his health was deteriorating, he had a kind of uh, nervous disorder that resembles uh, Parkinson's disease. So he had the shakes uh, all the time. And this was at a time before there was any medication to help with this very much. He managed to write these five plays that are very well regarded now and two of which are held to be two of the finest plays ever written by an American or even in world theater and those are, those two are The Iceman Cometh and Long Day's Journey into Night. The other three being Huey which is a small one-act play, A Touch of the Poet and then the final play he wrote uh, A Moon for the Misbegotten which is a kind of sequel to Long Day's Journey into Night about the final stages of of, uh, Jamie's life, the older brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he he's such an interest, interesting figure because he's not, um, one, he's not especially well-educated in the traditional mold. Like you said, you know, he went to boarding school where he was miserable. He read a lot on his own. He gets kicked out of Princeton after a semester and then just like lives on the sea for a while. <laughs> Um, and basically teaches himself how to be a playwright. So in some sense, he's kind of an autodidact, or this is all coming from within him in some sense. You know, and then like a lot of great artists, he's also a a jerk, right? I mean... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's like, uh, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is another great example. I mean, there are many throughout history, but, you know, Rousseau, like, yeah. abandoned five children and and sort of, yeah, was a creep. And even, even, even the great Socrates, you know, he's about to be put to death. And he's like, yeah, Xanthippe, whatever, you know, tell her I said goodbye. I'm going <laughs> to hang out with my buddies here at the end. You know, it's there is a kind of, a kind of, disinterest in family life. Um, I think when, uh, I think this is in the documentary that when, when O'Neill ended up with this third woman, Carlotta Monterey, who, who was like perfect for a guy like this. She wanted to be the wife of a great world historic artist. And she wanted to serve him to be his nursemaid, handmaiden, uh, kind of propping up his ego, being sort of a muse for him. And she would say things to him like, you shouldn't be dealing with kids and diapers and meals and responsibilities. You're, You're here to do great work. And he thought this is like, like heaven on earth, I finally found the the, mm-hmm. the perfect woman for me, um, and I, I don't think he's alone no, he's in not. that. Uh, again, you go back through the the history of <laughs> long lineage of great artists and philosophers have yeah. sort of operated. Yeah, this so way. he's. I mean, um, I think he's he's an interesting person because I think you know, on the one hand, he I think there are some very deep insights into the human in these plays and that's what makes it great art but I also think there is a certain kind of self-absorption you know in them that I think is was obviously a limitation in his life 
But insofar as we can speak of limitations in his art, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, some people who are very self-absorbed bring a lot of truth out of that. But I think we should just jump into Long Day's Journey and Tonight because we got to get through two of these plays. And I will just say that I think they are very incredible plays, very incredible. And I would love to see it on the stage now. I haven't. I've only seen like YouTube versions <laughs> of theater productions, but you know, you do what you can. So as you said, this is just one day, right? And it's just one family uh, and like a servant you know, those are the only characters and it starts out in the morning and it ends in the night and it's just a lot of conversations. So it's, this is not a plot heavy, <laughs> uh, it's not a plot heavy play. Obviously we learn a lot about these characters through these conversations, but yeah, it's very autobiographical. I mean, you've got the father who was a famous actor and this, you know, obviously past his prime now, possibly even retired. And then the mother who clearly has something going on. It's not, not clear until the play progresses exactly what she has going on. It turns out she's a morphine addict, but who has attempted suicide and some other things. And then we just have these two boys, right? We have Jamie and, and Edmund, and it's clear that Eugene is Edmund. Yes, that's that's the, the, the one bit of literary license in the play is that Eugene made him gave himself the uh name of his dead brother um right and the dead brother is referred to in the course of the play as called eugene so he just swapped the names uh and in the in the documentary they make much of this uh that yeah uh that you know o'neill sort of in love with death and kind mm -hmm. of feels a kind of deadness inside of him and this is sort of objectified or exemplified by this literary choice to kind of make himself a ghost mm -hmm. uh, in, in the play. Maybe it also just made it easier for him to write it <laughs> in a more mm -hmm. authentic way. I mean, I mean, one thing that's interesting about this play and probably worth mentioning is that he sent it to his publishing house and said, don't publish it. Like he told people not to publish it. Yeah. I forget how long he said, if it was 25 or 50 years, he, the instructions were, it should not be published for a very long length of time, several decades and never performed ever. Those were the instructions. And it ended up being both published and performed within about a year and a half of his death because his wife, Carlotta, who was also his literary executrix, overruled him uh, as soon as he was gone. Mm -hmm. And over over the, the uh, desire of his publisher, who knew Eugene O'Neill's stated wishes, uh, she just plowed past that and said, no, this is a great work of art and we're going to do it. Again, in the documentary, I think it's Barbara Gelb because Barbara um, and Arthur Gelb are the author of the definitive biography of O'Neill. They sort of speculate that O'Neill knew that she would betray him and publish it, which you know, if that's true, that kind of raises all kinds of interesting psychological questions about O'Neill himself. Like mm -hmm. he wanted to be viewed as sort of modest and not wanting this published, but yet wanted it published and performed, but wanted her to take the, the fall for doing it or something. I don't, right. I, I have no opinion about the truth of that as an interpretation, but it's interesting. 
Yeah, that's that's unclear. I mean, there's a lot about Eugene O'Neill that's very unclear. Yeah. But the play is sort of, when I think about the themes of the play or the things that the play is exploring, I mean, obviously it's it's a play about family love and how it can become really disordered and produce a kind of profound loneliness. Um, I mean, everybody in that play is very lonely, especially Edmund and his mother. Um, his mother's constantly talking about how lonely she is. And also there's sort of this theme of homelessness. Like they're, they're all in this home, you know, that's right on the water, but the mother character is always insisting that it's not really a home, right? It never became a home. And this is part of her really profound unhappiness um, as, as a mother. And then there's that's kind of attached to this broader theme, I think, of just exile or homelessness in some bigger existential sense of like, you know, how can I make a home for myself in this world? Is it possible for me really to make a home for myself? And, you know, there's like this barroom home dichotomy. Because another thing that the mother's always mad about is that the men in her life, the men that she's devoted her life to, prefer the barroom, right? They want to be out. They don't want to be in this home, which frankly, <laughs> the more you realize what the home is like, this, you could blame no one for not really wanting to spend a lot of time there. But of course, she's tied to the home. She doesn't really have a meaningful social life outside of it. And then, yeah, there's just this specter of the past that none of them can get out of. Yeah, I mean, those are, I think, both very much themes that are sort of in tension with each other. And I think in an artistically productive way, as you said, on the one hand, you have this theme of homelessness or abandonment. There's always, and this relates to the theme of, of um, atheism, which I've written about in O'Neill before, and we'll probably have other occasions to talk about, and especially in Iceman. But there's always this sense that there is a standard, there is a, a, a something that you once had or that you envision in your mind that you've lost. So it's not that you're sort of just wandering aimlessly, unsure of how to live. You sort of know how it's supposed to be. You once enjoyed it. Uh, it was better once in the past. And now I've been ripped apart, ripped away from it. The yeah. sense of lostness, abandonment. I mean, certainly in the play, uh, Mary, the character who is Ella uh, in real life, her theme throughout the play is that she's lost. I've, I've lost something. What is it? And it always ends up being the faith in the Virgin Mary. She wanted to be a nun when she was young and ended up uh, being counseled by, uh, by uh, a, a nun who was her advisor in school and who, who told her, well, you're, maybe you're not sure yet. Why don't you go away and live life a little while and then come back after another year or so? And it's in that period that she met, fell in love with, and married James her husband. And the fact that after that and the death of the child and the morphine addiction, that somehow out of all of that, she ended up um, not 
she and she lost her faith at some point and yet cannot go on without it the fact that it used to be there and is gone is something that almost might i mean you might even interpret her her own morphine addiction as an attempt to fill that hole yeah. in herself and all the characters in the play have that dynamic and then there's also you also indicated at the end of what you were just saying there's also this dynamic of being uh uh now now i'm forgetting what was your second point i forget you you, you were talking for a while about oh well let me just before it's fine. Like it, let me just pick up something and then we'll come back sure but you know i i do think that the mother maybe has a double sense of loss or even a triple sense of loss, maybe feels like she lost her original vocation, right? To religious life, to consecrated life. But then she had the second vocation as wife and mother and feels like she lost that because it didn't at all turn out the way that she had hoped it would. And then I think the maybe the third loss is her faith, but tied to that, of course, is also a loss of hope. And it's in her whole character. Like she almost seems throughout the play to like not even really know what's going on or where she is. I mean, she, she seems like she's in a dream world and, you know, she kind of fades in and out a bit and, I mean, her her characters. There's something deeply sad and disturbing about her, in particular. Yes. Yeah, and everybody else is kind of trying to protect her. You know, it seems like a, a lot of the day is spent sort of reacting to what the mother is doing, and the men in her life are trying to protect her and really failing on some spectacular level. But they're not, they're not disinterested in her. You know, it's just that they don't really know how to love her and give her what she actually wants and needs. And there are the, I think the saddest scenes in the play are the ones where she's really trying to articulate what she wants and they just don't get it. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think all the characters are lost in that sense, although it manifests itself very, very differently across the four of them. But there's, as I was saying before, there is this sense that there are moments in life when you can have happiness or completion or fulfillment, but they're fleeting, they they pass after a certain amount of time, they're they're gone and then you sort of mourn their loss and your whole life becomes defined by their absence and the the longing for for recapturing them and in the end the more you obsess about that the less capable you become of actually enjoying it again this this sense of of again at one point i mean the very last line of the play which is belongs to mary is She's recounting that foundational story about talking to the nun, Mother Elizabeth, about how I want to be a nun. And she says, no, go off and think about it a little while longer and then come back. We'll talk. And she says, and then what happened? Oh, yes. Then I met James Tyrone and fell in love. And I was so happy for a time. 
That's the last line of the play. That fact that she was happy in love with him, but only for a time, because then the realities of the marriage, having kids, the life on the road, not a real home, and then the death of Edmund and everything that spiraled out of that sort of leaves her, you know... I mean, as you were putting it in terms of maybe two vocations, if the second vocation was a vocation of loving her husband, having children, living her life devoted to her family, when she lost that as a source of happiness or fulfillment, she was felt abandoned and only seemed to be able to recover it through addiction to a painkiller. I always think it's very significant right. that Americans continue so terribly to struggle with addiction to a kind of drug that's called a painkiller. Um, right. Because a lot of us, I think, live our lives in a kind of pain and want relief from it, don't know how to get beyond it to a better state. And the O'Neill's plays are populated by people in that kind of state, even if only some of them seek refuge in a drug to get it, get beyond it. Yeah, and it's so interesting because, of course, the morphine isn't touching the real pain, you know, that she <laughs> needs someone to touch and heal and address. Uh, there's a really interesting scene with Mary where uh, she's talking to Edmund. This is Act 2, Scene 2. I have this um, volume with a foreword by Harold Bloom, which is Yale University. Oh, good. We have the same one. So yes. it's good. That's very convenient. Yeah. Page 96. Okay. So she's talking to Edmund and she says to him, you know, cause, cause she's like, stop being so suspicious of me. And he's like, what do you expect, mom? Like, you you know, you're not exactly like, we should, we should be suspicious of you. It's like the normal thing. And she's like, oh, I don't blame you. How could you believe me when I can't believe myself? I've become such a liar. I never lied about anything once upon a time. Now I have to lie, especially to myself. But how can you understand when I don't myself? I've never understood anything about it, except that one day long ago, I found I could no longer call my soul my own. But someday, dear, I will find it again, right? And that's very dark. I think that's one of the darkest points in the play. It just shows how she's lost herself, right? She's lost herself and she has to lie to herself, um, in order just to go on. And I think that's really a theme throughout both of these plays, Absolutely. right? How, how we have to live in a kind of dream or a fantasy because reality is too painful to bear. Exactly. Um, and, and so there's a tension between, you know, on the one hand, these characters who live in the dream or in this case live in the fog mm -hmm. <laughs> the fog is sort of like an unspoken character in in a long day's journey uh, there's always a fog and there's always this foghorn going yeah. on and the fog is clearly a, some kind of metaphor you know some kind of symbol for their condition and she can't break out of the dream she doesn't have the resources to break out of the dream and she has this like moment of self-awareness about this. It's fleeting, right? There are these fleeting moments of self-awareness throughout these plays, but anyway. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. And uh, 
you, you might also note that the way she puts it in the passage you were pointing to about losing herself in the, in the great, beautiful speech that Edmund gives in Act 4 about himself and how he had this rare or has had a few rare moments in his life where he felt a kind of completion and unity, maybe even with God. They're very, always very fleeting. They don't last. But in those moments, one way he describes this is, I lost myself. I lost my life. I dissolved in the sea. I dissolved sort of almost a kind of pantheistic uh, self-eradication. And this notion that that somehow that's what we're looking for. Like, it's not a kind of Aristotelian uh, eudaimonia, to refer to this podcast, um, but instead a kind of self-annihilation, like that that's sort of the only way to achieve a state of completion or rest is to erase yourself or, or kind of embrace oblivion, and that we get it, you know, if you're married, you can get it, in, you know, for fleeting periods of time, you can induce it through drugs. The characters in these both of these plays, if they're not doing morphine, they're drunk, they're, they're constantly drinking whiskey. And so, you know, they're self-medicating in, in their own way. And that really is O'Neill's very bleak outlook on life, that somehow being sober, being lucid is intolerable and the only way to cope is either through self-medication that inebriates you or through lying. That, and, and this passage where she says, I've lost myself, I learned how to lie even to myself. You know, and as far as O'Neill's concerned, that's everybody. That's every human being who's ever lived. The only difference is those who are honest enough to admit their own lies to themselves and those who are not. And there are interesting, you know, connections in this to Freudian therapy. There's a there's a strand in modern thought, uh, also tied to Nietzsche, uh, who will, you know, I assume we'll be talking about a bit because um, he was very important for O'Neill. This notion that it's somehow not possible to live in the light of the truth. It's kind of an inversion of of Platonism, the idea that. You know, to live the best life for a human being is to ascend from the cave and ultimately to live in the in bask in the glow of the idea of the good, which is what you get to when you ascend from the darkness. It's the opposite in a way, or or maybe just a, a very different kind of metaphor that life is a struggle, a constant struggle in which we have to protect ourselves from the truth. Like, And this goes back to the ancient Greeks in the tragic tradition, which is very different than the philosophical tradition, I think, that to gaze into the abyss is to be destroyed and swallowed up by it or to be turned to stone. And, and so we have to, and Nietzsche in a weird way is his own kind of, at least in his early work, I think is a kind of refashioned Aristotelian looking for a kind of balance between yeah. truth and falsehood. That like, we can't live in the truth, yeah. but we also don't want complete delusion. We somehow have to have a delusion that allows the truth to kind of come through, but translate it into a way that we can tolerate and and, and right. live. And I think that O'Neill thinks his own drama is doing something like that, or at least that's what he aspires it to be doing. Yeah, I agree that Nietzsche is a, a messed up kind of Aristotelian. 
but that would be a, that, that would be another episode. Okay, part two. It would, be a, it, it would be a great episode. But yeah, I mean, I think what I find really interesting. So this is Edmund speaking to his father on page one fifty six. This is Edmund like having some kind of epiphantic, self-transcendent moment when he becomes one with the universe. And he's just, he's just like out on the ocean, you know, he's on a boat. And he says, I became drunk with the beauty and the singing and the rhythm of it. And for a moment, I lost myself, actually lost my life. I was set free. I dissolved in the sea became white sails and flying spray, became beauty and rhythm, became moonlight and the ship and the high dim starred sky. I belonged without past or future, within peace and unity and a wild joy, within something greater than my own life or the life of man to life itself, to God, if you want to put it that way. So, I mean, what I find really interesting about this is one, it's it's a it's a stable fact of human life, and there's a lot of empirical literature on this that people do have these experiences. The question about what kind of experience it is, or what it means, or whatever, but it's like it's a thing. And but I think what's so appealing to about it for Edmund is that it's without past or future, right? He can finally just be in the present, unburdened by the past and unworried about a future. And you can see why for him, given his past, that would feel like a kind of liberation. And I think, you know, on the one hand, like self-transcendence is good, but this is a kind of transcendence that requires a self-annihilation or a self-forgetting that I think is not good. There's something a little bit off with it. And I think that's because for so many of his characters, the burden of being themselves is too great, right? And that's why that's why you have to have the drugs and the drinking and the and the horrors or whatever else you are using to cope with this burden of being yourself. But this is like the greatest moment of his life. I think there's a real dark edge to it. Yes, absolutely. And actually, Edmund's speech, which uh, I I referred to before and you just read some of, is is for me um, the most moving uh, speech in in any of O'Neill's plays. And I really... I really adore it. Uh, Robert Sean Leonard uh, played Edmund when I saw uh, the the show on Broadway in 2003, and he recites this passage in the documentary, and it's beautifully done. Yeah, I agree. It is it is both dark, but it, it's also it's sort of what I one thing that I find interesting about this speech is the way that it maps on to kind of classical themes um, while also combining this kind of Nietzschean darkness of, of, that involves kind of self erasure that you're referring to. I mean, he says later in here, then the moment of ecstatic freedom came, the peace, the end of the quest, the last harbor, the joy of belonging to a fulfillment beyond men's lousy, pitiful, greedy fears and hopes and dreams. Now, that sort of uh, misanthropic stuff at the end of the sentence, maybe bracket that for a second, but just the whole idea that like the end of the quest. So this is kind of classical Aristotelian or Thomistic, like 
this is the opposite of like Hobbes, where like all there is is an endless series of passions being aroused and fulfilled until you die. Um, this this is a statement that I achieved a kind of deep, profound fulfillment of everything that I ever drove me on in life in this moment. And you could say in a kind of classical theistic sense that this would be a kind of entryway to a kind of Christian piety about about uh, like a way to try to sustain this as a whole way of life where you feel fulfilled or in a classical philosophical sense, there are modes of doing that too. But in this, it's, it's this fleeting moment that has no kind of moral content to it at all. It's a kind of sensual dissolving of self into the natural world. And, and again, it, it's then just gone. Though the last thing I'll leave with is, is this very interesting suggestion that he says, um, he also describes it like a saint's vision of beatitude, like the veil of things as they seem drawn back by an unseen hand. For a second you see, and seeing the secret, you are the secret. For a second there is meaning, but then the hand lets the veil fall and you are alone, lost in the fog again, and you stumble on toward nowhere for no good reason. That passage is, um, I, re I think, really the key to understanding O'Neill in a way, and how it, it both, again, resonates with classical themes of the best way of life, but totally inverts them, that the truth is there is no meaning the truth is you are alone, that you're lost in the fog, and you live your life stumbling on toward nowhere for no good reason at all. But every now and then, there's a moment where it seems like maybe there's something deeper and more meaningful at work, and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, this is so fascinating to me because, and I sent you this, you know, Simone Weil She's hard to explain. <laughs> She's kind of a unbaptized Christian Platonist mystic type. But she talks about the same kinds of experiences, but she draws the exact opposite conclusions from them, right? So she, this is a little quote that I sent you from a, a short essay of hers called Morality and Literature, in which she says, the substance of our life is made nearly entirely of fiction. We tell ourselves tales about our future. Without a heroic love of truth, we recount our past, all the while refashioning it to our taste. Not looking too closely at other people, we tell ourselves stories about what they think, what they are saying, what they are doing. Reality furnishes the elements of these stories, just as romantic novelists often take their plots from the news, but we wrap them in a fog of inverted values. Inverted just as they are in all fiction, where evil attracts and good bores. It is only when reality gives us a strong enough shock that we wake up for a second, such as when we come close to a saint or when we fall into the realm of affliction or crime. It is only in such cases or similar ones that for a moment we sense the horrible monotony of evil or the unfathomable marvel of goodness. But soon enough, we fall back into our half dream peopled by our narrational fantasies. So she thinks there are these moments where the veil is lifted 
and you actually see things as they are and good is attractive and evil's horrible, right? And she thinks, you know, like a lot of her philosophy is about trying to get to these moments, which is why she's obsessed with, you know, the capacity for attention and stuff. And it's so interesting to me that he's talking about this moment where the veil is pierced, you know, and you see things, but like somehow for him, it lands you in nihilism. Like he doesn't, and it's also weird because he has this moment and he sort of sees that uh, he has this kind of peace and unity and wild joy, right? But he can't maintain it. And so where's the nihilism coming from? Is it because he can't maintain it or because he thinks, well, actually the veil of perception wasn't pierced. It was like a dream and the fog is reality. I'm like a little bit confused on this point with Anil. Yeah, it's true. If what he sees by the veil being raised by the unseen hand is reality, if it's truth, then the conclusion shouldn't be that when you're left alone and stumbling on, you're not really stumbling on toward nowhere. It might feel like you are because you're back in the fog, but you know that beneath the fog, there is something true that you've had an experience of, and the hand may come back and raise it again. But for him, he just can't accept that. I Actually, this might be, I know we have limited time here, but you asked me in preparing for this to, to talk a little bit about his relationship with Dorothy Day. Yeah, let's do it, definitely. There's, yeah. there's actually something about, I kind of reminded myself of some of the details of that and prepping for this. And some of that speaks to this issue. Um, so Dorothy Day, of course, the, the, the very well-known and admired um, kind of Catholic social worker, uh, writer, and, you know, possibly someday saint from uh, the first half of the 20th century. She knew O'Neill very well. She and O'Neill were in the same circles in this period, shortly after O'Neill had his his rock bottom moment there at the foot of Manhattan in 1912. They actually spent most of the winter of 1917 to 18 together. It's not clear that they had a kind of romantic or sexual relationship, though they may have. Um, They were seen together all the time, frequently would sort of go out, drink, they'd go to parties together, then they'd walk around Manhattan together till dawn, and then like she'd go back and for a few hours, go to the office where she was working for uh, the masses uh, and the Liberator, two of these far left-wing magazines and newspapers at the time that probably taught her how to do uh, a newspaper, which led to the Catholic Worker, which she founded later. Um, And then she'd end up, after doing a few hours of work for that, would meet up with Eugene again, and they would spend hours and hours together talking. When they first met, it was at a party where someone said, oh, Eugene, you know, say that poem again. And what was the poem? It was The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson, a devout Catholic poet, which which is 183 lines long and Eugene had memorized. Mm -hmm. And so he would recite this poem from memory and Dorothy Day, who was raised as a Protestant and hadn't converted yet to Catholicism, 
was already very intensely drawn to the Catholic Church. She would spend time at St. Joseph's on Sixth Avenue, often after these long evenings out partying with uh, the radicals in Southern Manhattan uh, and spending time with O'Neill. She would end up going to like dawn mass at this church. Uh, and so she loved that this, you know, brooding man on the couch would recite this poem. I'll just cite four lines from it. I fled him, capital H, so this is God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And for O'Neill, it appears he loved this poem because it accounted for his own deliberate flight from the religious belief of his childhood in a kind of a kind of angry renunciation of God because of what he learned about his mother being a morphine addict and the other traumas of his childhood. But for Dorothy Day, she loved the poem because she liked the idea that she was being pursued by God and might give in to the chase. Um, and that harmony, that kind of balance between those two somehow brought them together. And then let me quote, these are actually from a couple of different interviews that she gave over the years about O'Neill that sort of explain, I think, some things we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. She said, uh, this is talking about, um, she became convinced that O'Neill suffered from rejecting the love of God, that he was deliberately renouncing it. And then she says, quote, people don't want that love. Man fights against the light. Gene was single-minded in his objective. Nothing could distract him. Nothing could devour him. In that sense, there was a kind of purity in him. He was not attracted to evil, but to darkness. He was absorbed by death and darkness. If ever a man had the tragic sense of life, it was Eugene O'Neill. To me, he portrayed more than any other what life without God is like. I pray that Gene turns to the light. So, I mean, that resonates with what you quoted from Simone Weil and also with some of these themes about kind of classical view of light and darkness and mm -hmm. being oriented like in the darkness, but you see the light and you're drawn to it, whether it's the idea of the good or the end of the quest, the kind of the telos of life and happiness and fulfillment. Or if you interpret experiences that reveal an end like that as a kind of something that's like confusing me, it's just another more beautiful illusion and I will not accept it. I will push it away and insist that the truth, as ugly and horrible and difficult as it is to experience, is here in the fog, in the in the confusion and loneliness and abandonment that I, I feel in all the other moments when I'm not seeing that light. That quote's so interesting to me because the character of Edmund is someone who really just doesn't, doesn't want to be himself, doesn't even want to be a man. So this passage that we've been looking at, it ends with him saying it was a great mistake by being born a man. Um, I will always be a stranger who never feels at home, who does not really want and is not really wanted, who can never belong, who must always be a little in love with death. And that is a very, very striking passage 
because there's this sense of never feeling at home, not having a home in this world. And there are, of course, two ways you could go with that. You know, there's sort of the the Camus way, right? I don't have a home in this world, but I also don't have a home with God in another world. And so I have to live with this homelessness, right? And I can do that. It takes a certain kind of courage, but I can do that, blah, 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 Camus. Whereas this sense of exile is it's all, I mean, it's all there in Augustine. It's all there in the Bible. It's all there in, in all the Christian tradition, you know, because this isn't our home. We are homeless. We are in exile. We are wayfarers, right? But he feels this very deeply, you know, this sense of exile. But he, in some sense, I just get the sense from O'Neill that, you know, being human and especially being him, <laughs> is just a tremendous, a tremendous burden that he would rather not bear, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Although I guess because I'm, I'm more drawn to his, his vision of existence, um, to briefly try to make a case for it a little bit. Um, if you look at the behavior of his characters and recognize anything true about how they their kind of tortured existence there is a kind of um there is a for me at least a kind of truth to some of this that the, the, the characters in his plays are tortured more than most of us thank goodness but that allows us to I think to see things in them that maybe for the rest of us are a little subtler and harder to detect. And the things in O'Neill that um, are, I think, you know, Sidney Lamette in the documentary about O'Neill talks about how 50 times in a play there are these lightning flashes that reveal things about us, you, me, all of us together and, and, and kind of what human life is like. And it is, for me, his plays do do that. And what is it that it reveals? Just how, not just two-faced, but like eight-faced, 13-faced we are, how complex and tortured we can be in our judgments and feelings about people. That some of the best speeches, uh, you know, the speech that, uh, the terribly drunken, horrible speech that Jamie gives later in Act 4, right after the passage you've been reading from Edmund. I mean, we don't really have time to get into it, but he, you know, Jamie is, is, is the most tortured, really, of them all. And he, the real person of Jamie died in his mid-40s, basically drank himself to death. Um, he's the one who felt the, the burden of guilt for the death of the other child. And he really is just consumed by self-loathing this passage in his rant against Edmund where he effectively says, all right, you've just found out you have TB, you're going in a sanatorium with consumption, you better watch out when you come out because I'm going to try to destroy you. I've always tried to destroy you. I've tried to make drink look romantic. I've tried to make whores look appealing. I've tried to tell you that 
having a job is a sucker's game. And I've told you this because that's my wisdom, but I did it deliberately so that you would fail. And why? Because your success makes me look worse because I'm a terrible failure and I don't want you making me look worse. So I want to destroy you. Tie a can to me when you come out, say your brother's dead. You never want to see me again because I'll stab you in the back the first chance I get. And then he says, but that means I love you. Don't forget, I warned you about me. Greater love hath no man than this, that he saveth his brother from himself. Mm -hmm. That kind of self-lacerating hatred, I mean, again, amped up all the way by the fact that Jamie's a true mess, and most of the rest of us, thank goodness, are not such messes. But doesn't that speak to something true about sibling rivalry that you kind of you want your sibling to be a success but not too much of a success and because then you're going to make me look bad by comparison maybe my parents will think i'm a loser i'd rather them think that person's a loser than me i want all the love the way that selfishness and selflessness intertwine in ways that can be can end up being uh, poisonous and lead to self-loathing and self-hatred. And then as a possible transition in the last 10 minutes that we have to a little bit about the Iceman, a terrible guilt feeling of loving someone and yet at another level hating them and then hating yourself for hating them. That dialectical psychological uh, torture runs through so many of the characters in his plays in a way that, again, is far more exaggerated uh, in them than it is in most of us, but I think to some extent is there in us too. And perhaps because of the traumas of my own childhood, I feel them somewhere kind of in between uh, your average fulfilled person and, say, Jamie Tyrone in Long Day's Journey. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think he's an amazing playwright. I think that he explores some real home truths about the human person. I mean, we are messed up. We do find it hard to love ourselves and one another. We do find it very hard to bear much reality. We are incredibly self-deceived, etc. I mean, you might just call that original sin. That's what I would call it. But it's it's just kind of true that we are we are kind of like this. It is, it is a struggle for us. Um, but I think, and, and you also find in his characters, all of these unsatisfied longings, especially longing for forgiveness and longing for redemption. Um, and he will not allow his characters really to be forgiven or redeemed. And that I obviously would like to question because we all are in need of forgiveness and redemption. That's part of what it is actually to love other people is to develop a capacity to see their wounds, to respond to their wounds, to forgive them, you know, to allow a modicum of grace <laughs> to operate in human life. And that is really evacuated. You know, there's no grace in these plays. Well, no, there isn't. But I would say, I mean, at least from some statements of O'Neill himself, I think he at least aspired for Long Day's Journey to be a way of 
attaining understanding and forgiveness of his family, of of all the, the burdens that they carried with them to try to reconcile himself to why they hurt him so much and hurt each other so much because of how tortured they were. So I, I don't think for O'Neill the problem is that we can't forgive each other as much as that we don't forgive ourselves, that we... We sort of, and this is the the respect in which I think O'Neill um, is what I've called in something I wrote. I hope you'll link to it on the on the website when this goes live. Uh, calling him a Catholic atheist, that he was an atheist, but there was something distinctively Catholic about him, and that his characters and himself long for a kind of forgiveness that the church offers through its sacraments and, you know, like the sacrament of confession. I mean, at Jamie, at the end of that speech, right after he says the line from the Bible adapted for the moment when he says, uh, greater man hath no man than this, that he saveth his brother from himself. He then pauses and says, that's all feel better now gone to confession. <laughs> I mean, like that, horrible vomiting forth of pain and accusation that he's just thrown at his brother Edmund is a kind of confession without the institutional structure and sacramental edifice of the Catholic Church. And the entirety of uh, the Iceman Cometh is kind of, it's all kind of a story of what happens when human beings have exactly what you've described as original sin, the anthropology that comes straight from the Catholic Church and the Christian Church in general, but I say Catholic mainly because of O'Neill's background and then because of the the sacramental rootedness of it in the Catholic Church, as opposed to free-floating kind of individualism in, in so much of Protestantism, but it would it would fit just as well in its own way with Eastern Orthodoxy, I think. But whatever the case. You have a kind of Catholic Christian anthropology without that structure that enables us to kind of try to live a decent life with that understanding of who human beings are, who we are, and the pain we live with. And what happens when we, even if we forgive each other, how do we live ourselves with our own self-hatred if there's no forgiveness? in a structure. And then I think in the Iceman, you see in the iconic character of Hickey, you see the pure Nietzschean argument that in effect, we can't even live with the thought of a God who would forgive us as God has promised to do in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in pure Nietzschean psychological terms, we come to hate the source of that forgiveness. As Hickey says in his great titanic speech at the end of that play. There's a limit to the guilt you can feel and the pity and the forgiveness you can take. You've got to begin blaming someone else. I mean, in my reading of that horrible speech, Hickey, who, spoiler alert, murders his wife, he tells the story of effectively his wife was like the Christian church. 
He treated her like garbage. He cheated on her. He gave her venereal disease. He was a drunk. He promised he would do better, and he fails again and again and again. And she always forgives him and says, I know you can do better, Teddy. I believe you can. I trust you can. And he believes it in the moment. And then he fails again and hurts her again. And in the end, rather than have to face forgiveness again, he murders her, just as according to Nietzsche, we murdered God. God is dead. We killed him because we couldn't take being forgiven anymore. Uh, and that would mean, if it's true, again, at the level of psychology or anthropology, that in the end, the Christian church maybe is correct about the, the deeply ingrained sense of guilt and self-judgment in the human heart, and yet wrong about whether anything, even a, a story of God himself, there to sort of sanctify us and redeem us in the end like maybe the self-hatred and judgment is so great that it consumes even that that in the end it gives us both parts the self-hatred on the human side and the redemption on on god's side but in the end the self-hatred is stronger and you know that's the great kind of mind-bending character of Nietzsche's atheism is that we both create God and then we deprive ourselves of God because we will no longer allow ourselves to have any hope for redemption any longer. We need somehow have to deny ourselves of even that. We don't deserve forgiveness and we won't accept it any longer. So anyway, I've talked for a long time and we, we're running out of time, but. Well, I find, I mean, this is clarifying for me because when we talk about the atheist, we're talking about someone who is rejecting something. So the question is, what are you really rejecting? And it seems to me that what he's really rejecting is grace right? What he's really rejecting is this idea of an entirely gratuitous, undeserved love and celebration of the fact that you exist, right? That's grace. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's gratuitous. It heals your wounds, right? It makes you whole again, right? It takes something broken and fixes it. And I think that is has to be in some sense related to his inability to live with himself and, and probably to love himself, right? Yeah. You know, that's very interesting because I think that, I think that happens to people. I see this happen to people and you can think about it on a philosophical level, right? It's all there in Aristotle and his account of friendship, Right his account of love of other people is rooted in self-love. It's an, it's a kind of taking of the love of yourself and throwing it up into a higher register, which he thinks you need to do. But, you know, there's a, there's like, as it were, a movement of the soul there that needs to be made in, in order for you to be happy and flourish. And I, I think Anil, whether he was trying to or not, probably he wasn't trying to, but there's something revelatory there because it does reveal what it's like when you can't love yourself 
and when you can't accept the love of other people. I think there's a lot of that going on in a long day's journey and tonight. And, you know, I, I mean, the Iceman Cometh is, there's so much to talk about in that play. I think it's even darker in a lot of ways. It is. You know, I, th I think it's there too. It's a kind of, you know, in Hickey, there is a kind of rejection of, of grace. That's pretty explicit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, at least on my reading where where his wife, Evelyn, um, is a kind of metaphor for the Christian church, I, I see, I mean, a rejection of and a kind of violent lashing out against. And of course, his, you know, the whole theme of the Iceman Cometh is pipe dreams and how we supposedly all go through life having pipe dreams, things that are not true, that are kind of life lies that enable us to fantasies, go on living. Fantasies. Fantasies. But Hickey's core pipe dream turns out to be that he wants to believe he's killed his wife because he loved his wife, right. because he allowed her to go on living her dream and not having to be disappointed by him failing to get better. Right. When in fact, he killed her because he hated her. Right. And he can't face the fact that he hated her, right. which again is very Nietzschean, the notion that we killed God because we hated God. We hated being forgiven because it made us feel like garbage about ourselves precisely because it was unmerited, because I did not deserve it, because I'm a piece of garbage. And don't tell me you're going to do this wonderful thing for me when I don't deserve this. I deserve worse. I deserve punishment. Or as Parrot, the sort of mirror character to Hickey in The Iceman, who turned in his mother to the authorities, uh, who she's going to be going to jail for radical political activity, he ends up killing himself in the end. And in a way, you know, Hickey's going to jail and maybe he'll face electrocution for his act. But we know that Parrot dies because he kills himself in at the end of the play and somehow that is what he deserves and that is somehow more authentic for O'Neill it seems than if he had accepted forgiveness and grace mm -hmm. be because he deserved punishment for his act so yeah that's dark <laughs> it is Okay, so just to kind of sum up, obviously we don't have time to get into Iceman. Uh, maybe we'll return to it. But, um, you know, what, what, what's the takeaway? I mean, you obviously really love O'Neill. I love O'Neill for very different reasons than you. But, like, what, what's kind of the takeaway that you want to leave us with here? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing to sum up. Um, I think our reception of art will always be partially subjective, meaning in the sense that it will be a function of our own experience and the way the world reveals itself to us and the way we interpret it through the lens of our broader experiences in life. As someone, as I said at the outset, who had a, a kind of a rough emotional childhood, not as bad as O'Neill's perhaps, but uh, had, had uh, some pain in it and has struggled over the years in feeling my own, like having experiences, not exactly like Edmund in Long Day's Journey, but my own sort of glimpses of a kind of moral, feeling a kind of moral, uh, 
nobility stirring in myself and having lots of thoughts of the, what's the best way of life, how should I live, philosophical wonderment and things, and yet has really had a hard time accepting faith, the church, an actual answer or end to the quest, all those things that Edmund lists. Um, I find I've I'm sort of looking in the mirror uh, when I, I go to an O'Neill play, that the struggles and suffering of his characters are in some sense my struggling and suffering, again, at a higher level more. You know, I, I'm married. I've been married for over 20 years. I have two kids. I love my wife and my kids. I've held a steady job for a long time. You know, so I'm, my life is not the O'Neillian tumult and mess and turbulence and in the same way. So it's, it's again, it's sort of like O'Neill gives us characters who are so messed up that like a, a very large blown up topographical map, you get to see details that on a smaller map, you know, you might not notice. So it's not that I feel like I'm Larry Slade or Hickey, Theodore Hickman in The Iceman or Edmund really in Long Day's Journey, but there are elements to their struggles that really, really resonate with me. And I appreciate that. Look, gray art holds up a mirror to life for us all, right? What did Flaubert say? Uh, Emma Bovary, say moi. Like, he wasn't saying I I am... <laughs> I'm a bourgeois, you know, housewife. Adulterous wife. Right. Yeah. But he was saying, like, there's a bit of me in her. And, of course, I think anyone who reads Madame Bovary will see a little bit of themselves in Emma. And that's why it's great art. So uh, we, we agree that it's great art. And I'm so grateful to you for bringing it to my attention. And, yeah, this is a really fun conversation. I'm sorry we can't keep going. But my toddler, she can't walk herself home. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And those things matter. Yeah. Yes, very good. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. I feel like it could have gone on for four hours. And uh, we'll have to next you know, time, get another occasion next, next time. time. Yeah. Right, take care. Thanks. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to www.patreon.com slash pod to become a monthly patron for as little as $2 a month. And I'd like now to thank our most recent patrons for their support. Thanks go to Noel Sanchez, Sarah Falona, Ellen Tuckler, Eric Weiland, and Elizabeth Brink. For our next episode, I'll be joined by the philosopher Cornell West to discuss James Baldwin. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. <laughs>